Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Cozy Christmas Podcast. My name is Art, and coffee cup in hand, we are well on our way to a brand new year. Welcome to the podcast that celebrates the stories of Christmas. Stories from long ago, or maybe it's your story about a Christmas that happened to you. Whatever it is, I invite you to share. Stories are a powerful thing, and I love sharing some of my favorite Christmas stories with you. To start things off today, let's talk about some books. And of course, the Cozy Christmas Book Club has officially started. And if you haven't seen yet, our first pick of the year is going to be Liz Ireland's wonderful cozy mystery called Mrs. Claus and the Santa Land Slains. The book is described this way. This Christmas season, travel to the North Pole you've never seen before, where Santa's new wife, April Claus, is not only set on creating the perfect holiday, she's also set on solving the perfect crime. Love is full of surprises, though few compare to realizing that you're marrying the real-life Santa. April Claus dearly loves her new husband, Nick, but adjusting to life in the North Pole is not all sugar plums and candy canes, especially when a cantankerous elf named Giblet Hollyberry is killed, felled by a black widow spider in his stocking, shortly after publicly arguing with Nick. Christmas Town is hardly a hotbed of crime, aside from mishaps caused by too much eggnog, but April disagrees with Constable Crinkle's verdict of accidental death. As April sets out to find the culprit, it'll mean putting the future of Christmas on the line and hoping her own name isn't on a lethal naughty list. Now, I've had Liz Ireland on the podcast uh, twice, and I definitely have plans to have her back on at some point down the road if, uh, if she'd like to be back on. I know she's got a new book coming out this fall that I'm looking forward to reading. It's set at Thanksgiving, I believe, and it's the fourth book in the Mrs. Claus series. So I'm sure we'll hear from her again, and I'll be sure to link the uh, interviews with her in the show notes. The book is currently available wherever you buy books. Uh, you can get it at a bookstore. I, I've got a bookshop.org link I will post in the uh, show notes as well if you'd like to order through them, and it helps support local bookstores as well as uh, this podcast. Uh, that's all the business side of things. This is a series that as soon as I first heard about it, I knew I was going to enjoy it. And I've talked about these books before. I did a couple video reviews on some of the books as well. I love everything about this series from the characters to even the cover art is, is, so, is, is so good. It's become a Christmas tradition now for me to read one of her stories at Christmas time. So if you would like to join us in, in our year-round book club, uh, you can head over to the Facebook page of A Cozy Christmas Podcast, or you can search for the Cozy Christmas uh, Book Club, and we'll be there. Uh, you can request to join. If you're having trouble finding it or don't do Facebook but want to be a part, let me know because I can set up also a Discord channel if you'd rather be on Discord or some other way we can keep the communication going. There's there's a couple of different apps we could use. Voxer is really fun. You can leave voice messages to each other instead of typing things out. Um, that might be a possibility too. I've just posted a suggested reading schedule for the book. 
this is mostly for my benefit, but if you want to, something to help kind of keep you on pace with me, um, the schedule you can find on the Facebook page, that will also give us a guide as to know when we can talk about which, which chapters without spoiling it for other people. I know some of you are faster readers and some of you are slower readers, so I just want to make sure I you know, don't spoil things for you if somebody finishes the book in a day and then posts who done it on the Facebook page. You know, we want to try to avoid that. And then coming up sometime at the end of March, I am hoping to do a live show or some kind of live Zoom discussion. I'm not sure which yet. And if you're able to participate in that, we I'd love to have you there, whether it's um, if it's a live show on YouTube, it, it'll probably just be me on camera and then you folks can interact in the chats. But uh, if I do a Zoom show, then there's you can be on camera if you'd like. Uh, you don't have to and you don't you, you don't even have to talk. You can just kind of lurk. I'm not quite sure yet what that's going to look like, but I've got plenty of time to plan it and I will totally not procrastinate until the last minute. <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. So uh, your patience is always appreciated, but uh, th- that's some things I still am working on. But for now, we're going to go ahead and jump into this book. Basically, we're reading about a chapter a day, you know, six chapters a week. I think that's pretty doable for most people. You know, if you are a slower reader, don't don't be discouraged. I, I, although I don't think there's an audiobook version of this book. I know some of the books we're going to hopefully read down the road, we'll have audiobook versions. And that's a perfectly fine way to, to read a book. Or if you go slower, you know, that's fine too. Uh, we, we just love to have you along and see what you think about these, these books. Speaking of favorite stories, I also want to mention a, a Christmas book I read in the Christmas mystery genre. I think it was the first book of the year I finished, and it's uh, Vicki Delaney's Hark the Herald Angels Slay which is part of the year-round Christmas mystery series. And I've interviewed uh, Vicki before on the podcast. And her series is definitely going on our list of potential reads. At some point, I'm sure her book will pop up. But I, I've really enjoyed that series. And, and book three was really, really good. It involves a, a, a murder, uh, as Cozy Mysteries do. The, the main character's ex-fiance, I think it was, uh, ends up murdered. And so, of course, she's a suspect and um, a very good mystery set in July in, in a Christmas town called Rudolph, New York. It's probably a book I should have read in the summer, but oh, well, it helped get me through those post-Christmas blues. Uh, that's a good one you might want to add to your reading list sometime. In other Christmas news, I am going to be on a guest on an upcoming podcast. It's called The North Pole News Dispatch in its host is Ken Smith. He also does the, the wonderful Faces to Places podcast. He's become a good friend online, and, and we're hoping to make some plans this summer maybe to, to meet up. It's going to be epic. Anyway, uh, he called me from there from the North Pole, and I got to be on his, his show. And I'm not sure yet when that episode will come out, but I'll be sure to let you all know when that does. Uh, but in the meantime, I really recommend his podcast. It's a wonderful radio-type show that's like I said, broadcast from the North Pole. Santa often flies by and you can hear him uh, in the background. And Elf Jacob always brings a wonderful joke that will be guaranteed to make you groan. So uh, it's it's a great, great little uh, podcast. And that's really um, all the news I have for today. 
So we'll get to our story. Right now we're at part two of chapter one of The Chimes by Charles Dickens. When we left off, Toby was was just sitting down to a dinner of tripe on the steps of a church with his daughter, who has some news to share with him. And in case you're wondering, um, I wasn't quite sure what tripe was. And apparently tripe is a type of edible lining from the stomachs of various farm animals. Most tripe is from cattle, pigs, and sheep. And there's a Wikipedia article on it that I found equally helpful and disgusting. (laughs) So I'm not sure I would have been excited about tripe as Toby was. But from what I understand, uh, tripe was considered a a poor man's food. So um, if you've just been listening to the last episode, you can see you'll know how excited he was to have it and he was thankful for it. But well, let me read chapter, finish out chapter one, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. So if you're ready, I invite you to grab a cup of coffee or eggnog or uh, anything you enjoy to drink, settle in by the Christmas fire, and I'll read to you today The Chimes by Charles Dickens, chapter one, part two. Why, Lord, forgive me, said Trotty, dropping his knife and fork. My dove, Meg, why didn't you tell me what a beast I was? Father? Sitting here, said Trotty in penitent explanation, cramming and stuffing and gorging myself, and you before me there, never so much as breaking your precious fast, nor wanting to, when... But I have broken it, father, interposed his daughter, laughing. All to bits. I have had my dinner. Nonsense, said Trotty. Two dinners in one day? It ain't possible. You might as well tell me that two New Year's days will come together, or that I have had a gold head all my life and never changed it. I have had my dinner, father, for all that, said Meg, coming nearer to him. And if you'll go on with yours, I'll tell you how and where, and how your dinner came to be brought, and and something else besides. Toby still appeared incredulous, but she looked into his face with her clear eyes, and laying her hand upon his shoulder, motioned him to go on while the meat was hot. So Trotty took up his knife and fork again and went to work, but much more slowly than before, and shaking his head, as if he were not at all pleased with himself. I had my dinner, father, said Meg, after a little hesitation, with with Richard. His dinner time was early, and as he brought his dinner with him when he came to see me, we uh, we had it together, father. Trotty took a little beer and smacked his lips. Then he said, Oh? Because she waited. And Richard, and Richard says, father, Meg resumed, then stopped. What does Richard say, Meg? asked Toby. Richard says, father... Another stoppage. (laughs) Richard's a long time saying it, said Toby. He says then, father, Meg continued, lifting up her eyes at last and speaking in a tremble, but quite plainly. Another year is nearly gone, and where is the use of waiting on from year to year, when it is so unlikely we shall ever be better off than we are now? He says we are poor now, father, and we shall be poor then, but we are young now, and years will make us old before we know it. He says that if we wait, people in our condition, until we see our way quite clearly, 
The way will be a narrow one indeed, the common way. The grave, father. A bolder man than Trotivec must needs have drawn upon his boldness largely to deny it. Trotty held his peace. And how hard, father, to grow old and die and think we might have cheered and helped each other. How hard in all our lives to love each other and to grieve apart to see each other working, changing, growing old and gray. Even if I got the better of it and forgot him, which I never could, oh, father dear, how hard to have a heart so full as mine is now and live to have it slowly drained out every drop without the recollection of one happy moment of a woman's life to stay behind and comfort me and make me better. Trotty sat quite still. Meg dried her eyes and said more gaily, that is to say, with here a laugh and there a sob and here a laugh and sob together. So Richard says, father, as his work was yesterday made certain for some time to come, and as I love him and have loved him full three years, oh, longer than that if he knew it, will I marry him on New Year's Day, the best and happiest day, he says, in the whole year and one that is almost sure to bring good fortune with it. It's a short notice, father, isn't it? But I haven't my fortune to be settled or my wedding dresses to be made, like the great ladies, father, have I? And he said so much and said it in his way, so strong and earnest and all the time so kind and gentle, that I said I'd come and talk to you, father, as they paid the money for that work of mine this morning, unexpectedly, I am sure, and as you have fared very poorly for a whole week, and as I couldn't help wishing there should be something to make this day a sort of holiday to you as well as a dear and happy day to me, father, I made a little treat and brought it to surprise you. And see how he leaves it cooling on the step, said another voice. It was the voice of this same Richard, who had come upon them unobserved and stood before the father and daughter, looking down upon them with a face as glowing as the iron on which his stout sledgehammer daily rung. A handsome, well-made, powerful youngster he was, with eyes that sparkled like the red-hot droppings from a furnace fire, black hair that curled about his swarthy temples rarely, and a smile, a smile that bore out Meg's eulogium on his style of conversation. See how he leaves it cooling on the step, said Richard. Meg don't know what he likes, not she. Trotty, all action and enthusiasm, immediately reached up his hand to Richard and was going to address him in a great hurry when the house door opened without any warning and a footman very nearly put his foot into the tripe. Out of the vase here, will you? You must always go and be a settin' on our steps, must you? You can't go and give a turn to none of the neighbors never, can't you? Will you clear the road or won't you? Strictly speaking, the last question was irrelevant as they had already done it. "'What's the matter? What's the matter?' said the gentleman for whom the door was opened, coming out of the house at that kind of light, heavy pace, the peculiar compromise between a walk and a jog-trot, with which a gentleman upon the smooth downhill of life, wearing creaking boots, a watch-chain, and clean linen, may come out of his house, not only without any abatement of his dignity, but with an expression of having important and wealthy engagements elsewhere. "'What's the matter? What's the matter?' You're always a being begged and prayed upon your bended knees, you are, said the footman with great emphasis to Trotivec, to let our doorsteps be. Why don't you let them be? Can't you let them be? There, that'll do, that'll do, said the gentleman. Hulloa there, porter, beckoning his head to Trotivec. Come here, what's that? Your dinner? Yes, sir, 
said Trotty, leaving it behind him in a corner. "'Don't leave it there!' exclaimed the gentleman. "'Bring it here! Bring it here! So, this is your dinner, is it?' "'Yes, sir,' repeated Trotty, looking with a fixed eye and a watery mouth at the piece of tripe he had reserved for a last delicious titbit, which the gentleman was now turning over and over on the end of the fork. Two other gentlemen had come out with him. One was a low-spirited gentleman of middle age, of a meager habit and a disconsolate face, who kept his hands continually in the pockets of his scanty pepper-and-salt trousers, very large and dog's-eared from that custom, and was not particularly well-brushed or washed. The other, a full-sized, sleek, well-conditioned gentleman in a blue coat with bright buttons and a white cravat. This gentleman had a very red face, as if an undue proportion of the blood in his body were squeezed up into his head, which perhaps accounted for his having also the appearance of being rather cold about the heart. He who had Toby's meat upon the fork called the first one by the name of Filer, and they both drew near together. Mr. Filer, being exceedingly short-sighted, was obliged to go so close to the remnant of Toby's dinner, before he could make out what it was, that Toby's heart leapt up into his mouth, but Mr. Filer didn't eat it. This is a description of animal food, Alderman, said Filer, making little punches in it with a pencil case. Commonly known to the laboring population of this country by the name of tripe. The Alderman laughed and winked, for he was a merry fellow, Alderman Cute. Oh, and a sly fellow, too. A knowing fellow, up to everything, not to be imposed upon, deep in the people's hearts. He knew them, Cute did. I believe you. But who eats tripe? said Mr. Filer, looking round. Tripe is without an exception the least economical and the most wasteful article of consumption that the markets of this country can by possibility produce. The loss upon a pound of tripe has been found to be, in the boiling, seven-eighths of a fifth more than the loss upon a pound of any other animal substance whatever. Tripe is more expensive, properly understood, than the hothouse pineapple. Taking into account the number of animals slaughtered yearly within the bills of mortality alone, and forming a low estimate of the quantity of tripe which the carcasses of those animals, reasonably well butchered, would yield, I find that the waste on the amount of tripe, if boiled, would victual a garrison of five hundred men for five months of thirty-one days each, and a February over. The waste, the waste. Trotty stood aghast, and his legs shook under him. He seemed to have starved a garrison of five hundred men with his own hand. Who eats tripe? said Mr. Filer, warmly. Who eats tripe? Trotty made a miserable bow. You do, do you? said Mr. Filer. Then I'll tell you something. You snatch your tripe, my friend, out of the mouths of widows and orphans. Oh, I, I hope not, sir, said Trotty faintly. I'd sooner die of want. Divide the amount of tripe before mentioned, Alderman, said Mr. Filer, by the estimated number of existing widows and orphans, and the result will be one penny weight of tripe to each. Not a grain is left for that man. Consequently, he's a robber. Trotty was so shocked that it gave him no concern to see the alderman finish the tripe himself. It was a relief to get rid of it, anyhow. "'And what do you say?' asked the alderman, jocosely, of the red-faced gentleman in the blue coat. "'You have heard, friend Filer. What do you say?' "'What's it possible to say?' returned the gentleman. "'What is to be said? 
Who can take any interest in a fellow like this, meaning Trotty, in such degenerate times as these? Look at him. What an object. The good old times, the grand old times, the great old times. Those were the times for a bold peasantry and all that sort of thing. Those were the times for every sort of thing, in fact. There's nothing nowadays. Ah, oh, sighed the red-faced gentleman. The good times, the good old times. The gentleman didn't specify what particular times he alluded to, nor did he say whether he objected to the present times. From a disinterested consciousness that they had done nothing very remarkable in producing himself. The good old times, the good old times, repeated the gentleman. What times they were. They were the only times. It's of no use talking about any other times or discussing what the people are in these times. You don't call these times, do you? I don't. Look into Strutt's costumes and see what a porter used to be in any of the good old English reigns. He hadn't, in his very best circumstances, a shirt to his back or a stocking to his foot, and there was scarcely a vegetable in all England for him to put into his mouth, said Mr. Filer. I can prove it by tables. But still the red-faced gentleman extolled the good old times, the grand old times, the great old times. No matter what anybody else said, he still went turning round and round in one set form of words concerning them. As a poor squirrel turns and turns in its revolving cage, touching the mechanism and trick of which has probably quite as distinct perceptions as ever this red-faced gentleman had of his deceased millennium. It is possible that poor Trotty's faith in these very vague old times was not entirely destroyed, for he felt vague enough at that moment. One thing, however, was plain to him, in the midst of his distress, to wit, that however these gentlemen might differ in details, his misgivings of that morning, and of many other mornings, were well founded. No, no, we can't go right or do right, thought Trotty in despair. There is no good in us, we are born bad. But Trotty had a father's heart within him, which had somehow got into his breast in spite of this decree, and he could not bear that Meg, in the blush of her brief joy, should have her fortune read by these wise gentlemen. God help her, thought poor Trotty. She will know it soon enough. He anxiously signed, therefore, to the young smith to take her away. But he was so busy, talking to her softly at a little distance, that he only became conscious of this desire simultaneously with Alderman Cute. Now the alderman had not yet had his say, but he was a philosopher too, practical though, oh, very practical, and as he had no idea of losing any portion of his audience, he cried, Stop! Now, you know, said the alderman, addressing his two friends with a self-complacent smile upon his face, which was habitual to him. I am a plain man and a practical man, and I go to work in a plain, practical way. That's my way. There is not the least mystery or difficulty in dealing with this sort of people, if you only understand them and can talk to them in their own manner. Now you, porter, don't you ever tell me or anybody else, my friend, that you haven't always enough to eat, and of the best, because I know better. I have tasted your tripe, you know, and you can't chaff me. You understand what chaff means, eh? That's the right word, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> Lord bless you, said the alderman, turning to his friends again. It's the easiest thing on earth to deal with this sort of people if you understand them. Famous man for the common people, 
Alderman Cute. Never out of temper with them. Easy, affable, joking, knowing gentleman. You see, my friend, pursued the alderman, there's a great deal of nonsense talked about want, hard up, you know. That's the phrase, isn't it? <laughs> and I intend to put it down. There's a certain amount of cant in vogue about starvation, and I mean to put it down. That's all. Lord bless you, said the alderman, turning to his friends again. You may put down anything among this sort of people, if you only know the way to set about it. Trotty took Meg's hand and drew it through his arm. He didn't seem to know what he was doing, though. Oh, your daughter, eh? said the alderman, chucking her familiarly under the chin. Always affable with the working classes, alderman cute. Knew what pleased them, not a bit of pride. Where's her mother? asked that worthy gentleman. Dead, said Toby. Her mother got up linen and was called to heaven when she was born. Not to get up linen there, I suppose, remarked the alderman pleasantly. Toby might or might not have been able to separate his wife in heaven from her old pursuits. But query, if Mrs. Alderman Cute had gone to heaven, would Mr. Alderman Cute have pictured her as holding any state or station there? And you're making love to her, are you? said Cute to the young smith. Yes, returned Richard quickly, for he was nettled by the question, and we are going to be married on New Year's Day. What do you mean? cried Filer sharply. Married? Why, yes, we're thinking of it, master, said Richard. We're rather in a hurry, you see, in case it should be put down first. Ah, cried Filer with a groan. Put that down indeed, alderman, and you'll do something. Married, married, the ignorance of the first principles of political economy on the part of these people, their improvidence, their wickedness, is, by heavens, enough to... Now look at that couple, will you? Well, they were worth looking at, and marriage seemed as reasonable and fair a deed as they need have in contemplation. A man may live to be as old as Methuselah, said Mr. Filer, and may labor all his life for the benefit of such people as those and may heap up facts on figures, facts on figures, facts on figures, mountains high and dry. And he can no more hope to persuade them that they have no right or business to be married than he can hope to persuade them that they have no earthly right or business to be born. And that we know they haven't. We reduced it to a mathematical certainty long ago. Alderman Cute was mightily diverted and laid his right forefinger on the side of his nose, as much as to say to both his friends, Observe me, will you? Keep your eye on the practical man. And called Meg to him. Come here, my girl, said Alderman Cute. The young blood of her lover had been mounting, wrathfully, within the last few minutes, and he was indisposed to let her come. But, setting a constraint upon himself, he came forward with a stride as Meg approached, and stood beside her. Trotty kept her hand within his arm still, but looked from face to face as wildly as a sleeper in a dream. "'Now I'm going to give you a word or two of good advice, my girl,' said the alderman in his nice, easy way. "'It's my place to give advice, you know, because I'm a justice. You know I'm a justice, don't you?' Meg timidly said, "'Yes,' but everybody knew Alderman Cute was a justice. "'Oh, dear, so active a justice always.' Who such a mote of brightness in the public eye as cute? You are going to be married, you say, pursued the alderman. 
very unbecoming and indelicate in one of your sex. But never mind that. After you are married, you'll quarrel with your husband and come to be a distressed wife. You may think not, but you will, because I tell you so. Now I give you fair warning that I have made up my mind to put distressed wives down. So don't be brought before me. You'll have children, boys. Those boys will grow up bad, of course, and run wild in the streets without shoes and stockings. Mind, my young friend, I'll convict them summarily, every one, for I am determined to put boys without shoes and stockings down. Perhaps your husband will die young, most likely, and leave you with a baby. Then you'll be turned out of doors and wander up and down the streets. Now, don't wander near me, my dear, for I am resolved to put all wandering mothers down. All young mothers of all sorts and kinds, it's my determination to put down. Don't think to plead illness as an excuse with me, or babies as an excuse with me, for all sick persons and young children. I hope you know the church service, but I'm afraid not. I am determined to put down. And if you attempt desperately and ungratefully and impiously and fraudulently attempt to drown yourself or hang yourself, I'll have no pity for you, for I have made up my mind to put all suicide down. If there is one thing, said the alderman with his self-satisfied smile, on which I can be said to have made up my mind more than on any other, it is to put suicide down, so don't try it on. That's the phrase, isn't it? <laughs> now we understand each other. Toby knew not whether to be agonized or glad to see that Meg had turned a deadly white and dropped her lover's hand. And as for you, you dull dog, said the alderman, turning with ever-increased cheerfulness and urbanity to the young smith, what are you thinking of being married for? What do you want to be married for, you silly fellow? If I was a fine, young, strapping chap like you, I should be ashamed of being milksop enough to pin myself to a woman's apron strings. Why? She'll be an old woman before you're a middle-aged man, and a pretty figure you'll cut then with a draggled-tailed wife and a crowd of squalling children crying after you wherever you go. Oh, he knew how to banter the common people, Alderman Cute. There, go along with you, said the Alderman, and repent. Don't make such a fool of yourself as to get married on New Year's Day. You'll think very differently of it, long before next New Year's Day. A trim young fellow like you, with all the girls looking after you, there, go along with you. They went along, not arm in arm, or hand in hand, or interchanging bright glances. But, she in tears, he, gloomy and down-looking. Were these the hearts that had so lately made old Toby's leap up from its faintness? No, no. The alderman, a blessing on his head, had put them down. As you happen to be here, said the alderman to Toby, you shall carry a letter for me. Can you be quick? You're an old man. Toby, who had been looking after Meg, quite stupidly, made shift to murmur out that he was very quick and very strong. How old are you? inquired the alderman. I'm over sixty, sir, said Toby. Oh, this man's a great deal past the average age, you know, cried Mr. Filer, breaking in as if his patience would bear some trying. But this really was carrying matters a little too far. I feel I'm intruding, sir, said Toby. I, I, I misdoubted it this morning. Oh, dear me. The alderman cut him short by giving him the letter from his pocket. Toby would have got a shilling too, but Mr. Filer, clearly showing that in that case he would rob a certain given number of persons of ninepence halfpenny apiece, he only got sixpence and thought himself very well off to get that. Then the alderman gave an arm to each of his friends and walking off in high feather, 
but he immediately came hurrying back alone as if he had forgotten something. Porter, said the alderman. Sir, said Toby, take care of that daughter of yours. She's much too handsome. Even her good looks are stolen from somebody or other, I suppose, thought Toby, looking at the sixpence in his hand and thinking of the tripe. She's been involved five hundred ladies of a bloom apiece, I shouldn't wonder. It's very dreadful. She's much too handsome, my man, repeated the alderman. The chances are that she'll come to no good, I clearly see. Observe what I say. Take care of her. With which he hurried off again. Wrong every way. Wrong every way, said Trotty, clasping his hands. Born bad. No business here. The chimes came clashing in upon him as he said the words, full, loud, and sounding, but with no encouragement, no, not a drop. The tune's changed, cried the old man as he listened. There's not a word of all that fancy in it. Why should there be? I have no business with the new year, nor with the old one neither. Let me die. Still the bells, peeling forth their changes, made the very air spin. Put em down, put em down, good old times, good old times, facts and figures, facts and figures, put em down, put em down. If they said anything, they said this, until the brain of Toby reeled. He pressed his bewildered head between his hands as if to keep it from splitting asunder. A well-timed action, as it happened, for finding the letter in one of them, and being by that means reminded of his charge, he fell, mechanically, into his usual trot, and trotted off. All right, well, that finishes up chapter one of Charles Dickens's The Chimes. We kind of leave poor Toby in a sad place. So we get some new characters here. Basically, the Alderman, Alderman Cute is somebody... I don't not sure I fully understand all the ins and outs of of Victorian British law and leadership and government, but uh, he was he was in the government. Um, I think elected by the council, the city council. And anyway, as you can see, he has some very pompous, arrogant views of the poor, and that he thinks that by passing a law, he can you know put down suicide and he can put down poverty and he can put down all these things and hearing Mr. Filer who is very I think they said he was an economist you know he has all the facts and figures and numbers of if you eat this and you're taking this from these many people and if you gave him this amount of money this would be taking money from other people and let's let's be honest he probably has no intention of giving money to anybody anyway uh, you know and then there is this other man who was had a lot of nostalgia for, you know, the good old days. And I like how, you know, each one of these three represents certain groups and movements in, in the government that we could probably even make connection to today. What they say about the poor and that they're not even worth getting married because it's just going to lead to more poverty and their children are going to grow up in poverty. And, and basically, I think he's saying it'd be better for you all to just be wiped out. All of this negative speak has a very discouraging impact on on Toby, where he is beginning to doubt maybe it would be better if they weren't even alive. 
and he's listening to this negative, these negative reports and he's believing it. So that's a theme that is going to be explored a little bit more in the next chapter uh, and then throughout the rest of the story. I'm going to uh, let us kind of sit and think about these this chapter and I'll have some more thoughts on it um, in the next episode and then we'll continue on with the story. Uh, Dickens has a powerful purpose in all this. And I think in the end, it's a little bit of a spoiler here, but not really. But, uh, you know, in the end, I think Dickens wants us to realize the value of all human life, whether rich or poor. But poverty is not something we can just, you know, make illegal and it will go away. Or blame necessarily blame on people for being born in a poor state. You know, yeah, sometimes people are poor because they're foolish, because they they waste their money or they, they lose their money or, you know, for some, they did something that caused them to, uh, to lose what they had. You know, the, the government, at least in theory, should be there to help and, and to look out for its citizens and to help them, not put them down because they're a nuisance and the fact that alderman cute and, and eats toby's tripe it's like very symbolic of something i'm not sure yet honestly but it's like he's taken everything away from toby including the food right out, out of his mouth uh, i don't know I, I i gotta think about that a little bit we'll, we'll continue on with the story and some other fun things in the next episode Hopefully we'll be next week. We'll get to chapter two. So in the meantime, um, that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening and for sharing this online to your friends who might enjoy uh, a, a New Year's story. If you would like to help out the show in a financial way, there are links in the show notes that will uh, point you to different ways you can do that, including uh, any donation you make to the podcast on Kofi.com. Uh, for just the price of a cup of coffee, um, you can help support the show and I'll send you a bookmark or sticker as my way of saying thanks for that support. Just send me, uh, if you make a donation, send me your address and I'll get that out to you. All right. I hope you are all doing well and doing good. And so until next time, let us honor Christmas in our heart and try to keep it all the year. Have a very Merry Christmas. Christmas.